I'm Sean Sheehan. And I'm Rodney Robinson. And this is the Teachers Caucus Podcast. This meeting of the Teachers Caucus is now in session. I'm Sean Sheehan, back in business with Rodney Robinson. Rodney, we took a little break. How you doing? Man, I'm, I'm good. I'm in a good spot right now, you know. It's the end of the school year, and things are it's just winding down. And, you know, we're actually getting a chance to work on some new things in district. And so we're really excited for next year, but we also know the issues we're going to face next year with the shortages and teachers not coming back. But, you know, we're, we're working. We're still working, getting more. How yeah. about you? Good, man. You know, just making moves. Uh, I was actually helping cover, do some uh, some state testing, Algebra 1 state testing, my, my bread and butter, which they thought it was crazy for going back on a campus, like volunteering. I was like, look, I, <laughs> I really like being here supporting y'all. And I know this is like a goofy thing, but this is where you need the help, right? If, if you're short, like yeah. that state testing stuff is no joke. So I was in a gym, you know, administering that Algebra 1 test and uh, <laughs> it felt like old times. So it was nice. <laughs> As a matter of That's fact, great. I'm actually, uh, th- I'm breaking this to you, but to the listeners at the same time, but uh, I'll actually be back on a campus next year. Nice. So I'm shifting roles voluntarily. I don't want anybody to, whoa, whatever. You get cut from the team, didn't cut, get cut from any teams. I'm actually doing a little sidestep. And I just, I, I've been, you know, doing my my governmental affairs thing for, for three years, really. But two, just kind of full-time in my own office. And it was lonely work, man. I mean, I didn't have a team. I was just like direct report to the soup. It was important work, but uh, I'm not just going to stand by on the sidelines and hear about shortages. And and my daughter is now going to kindergarten in the same district, so I'm like, look, my, I got skin in this game. Like, we gotta <laughs> we gotta get this right. So uh, yeah, I'm excited to just uh, be doing that work with teachers, with students, like front and center again. Um, in a my in a you can think of it as like an instructional coach role is is basically what I'll be doing. So yeah, 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 I'm I'm stoked. That's nice. Speaking of instructional coaches, um, one of the things I got going in our district is, um, of course, we have my program, RVA Men Teachers, is about getting more, you know, male minority teachers in the classroom. But starting next year, we're going to have our HBCU residency, you know, Ooh, which is yes. one, of the, one of the first kinds in the United States where we partner with Virginia State University and Virginia Union University. And what we're doing is, we're going to take our long-term subs, and they're going to do uh, one year of classes to get a master's degree in elementary education and exceptional education. And while they're doing that one year of long-term subbing, we're going to provide support, wraparound services, uh, coaching models, uh, just all the support we can from a district standpoint to make them become teachers. So while they're on the job learning to teach, they're also getting the pedagogical um, yeah. sub- classes through our HBCU partners while getting instructional coaches from the district. So it's a really unique situation. And most importantly, we put money in people's pockets. Yeah, These, res- these residency programs, I-, I tell them all the time, and I actually had, said, had this conversation with Secretary Cardona when he came to visit our district a couple weeks ago. It's like, you got to pay people. If you want diversity mm-hmm. in these residency programs, you can't just ask people of color to take a year off unpaid. I don't know very many people who can do that. And we know that people of color are taking on an inordinate amount of student loan debt. And so we got to pay people. But this program actually pays people, puts money in their pocket, while giving them on-the-job training and support 
to be a teacher, fully licensed teacher in one year. You know, so we're really excited about that. It's a one of a kind program and we're up and running and it's been a lot of work to do it. There's yeah. a lot of hate. I'll be honest, it's a lot of people that don't like it because it conflicts with some of their models. But this is a model that works for us and we're going to keep rolling with it. So I'm really excited for that. There you go. RVA Men Teach. You got to check that out. That's good. <laughs> well, hey, you know, we've had a, I feel like we've had pretty good representation across the country from our guests so far, but I, we've been sleeping on the Northwest, I think, a little bit. Isn't that right? I, it feels like you said you hadn't actually been up that right. Isn't that right? Yeah. I had all my Northwest trips right, right when COVID hit. So all that oh, got yeah. shut down. So I never made it to the West Coast or up north to the Northwest mm. during my Teacher of the Year year. We're changing that tonight. Yep. We have our 2020 Oregon Teacher of the Year in the house, Mercedes Munoz. Welcome. Welcome. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Glad to be Glad here. Glad to have you. Yeah. Well, please introduce yourself to, to our listeners. Well, as you mentioned, my name is Mercedes Munoz. I'm the Oregon 2020 Teacher of the Year. Um, I come out of Portland Public Schools, uh, did a long stint at Franklin High School, so my peeps in Portland will know all about that. Um, it's one of nine high schools in the large uh, metropolitan area. Um, you know, I think Go Lightning, we've kind of been the best and uh, uh, stay on top of things. Uh, not necessarily with our basketball team. I love y'all, but uh, not necessarily there. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> academically sound, um, I hail from Oakland, California. Grew up in the Bay, uh, grandparents relocated to Oregon just to start a better life and kind of get out of the mix and opened up a barbecue restaurant. And so my family kind of migrated along um, with them. And I believe that it saved um, our lives and, and really brought about some different outcomes for um, myself and my my two sisters. So that's just a little bit about, about me. Um, in my educational journey, I have worked as a licensed um, instructional coach, as a special education teacher, and that's actually um, what I won the Oregon Teacher of the Year under, um, as a special educator um, who's worked with children of all ages with different types of exceptionalities um, and in various classroom situations. Um, in, on the West Coast, I think we call it call the ISC, Intensive Skills Center, um, and, and that is for uh, youth who are more significantly impacted, um, whether that's verbally or cognitively. Um, and so that was my entry point straight out of grad school was in the ISC, brand new teacher, and I did not know what the heck I was doing, right? <laughs> um, and so, but I think it was a great way to learn, right? Um, trial by fire, um, learning how to put communication boards together and to help folks um, have language when they couldn't orally articulate what their needs were. And it really taught me right. to listen in um, to our youth in some different ways um, that have really carried me um, in my work. And so now, from there, to Hala School, uh, kicking off a brand new public tuition-free charter school out in Reynolds School District, so it's a little further east um, than where I'm used to. Wow. We'll, we'll talk more about that in a minute then, So that because you, you made a big jump. What, what about that whole part about uh, Oregon Teacher of the Year? I mean, tell us about that journey. I mean... 
Um, Oregon Teacher of the Year. First of all, I a lot of people don't know this, but I thought it was like a gag. The emails kept coming saying, hey, somebody has nominated you for this very like prestigious award. And I was like, yeah, right. And so I kept ignoring the email. And then um, our rep from Oregon reached out to me personally, Jenny, Jenny Naus. And Jenny was like, hey, do you want a shot at this? Because people are have nominated you and you should at least give it a chance. And so um, I basically spent about three or four days just kind of locked into the house, working on my application and just it takes you back through right your entire journey and also just through the doubts like could I really be Oregon's teacher of the year and I was like okay I'm going to submit it and I'm going to take my hands off of it and we'll see what happens and of course they announced the regional and I was like okay that was just dope by itself right to be acknowledged and honored um just in the northwest um but then to go ahead and like hear that oh you're going to be Oregon teacher of the year and to do the interview process, um, I was really proud and I felt like people were also really proud um, and especially my students. I think that that was the switch for me um, because I definitely felt a lot of the imposter syndrome, which really is white supremacy culture saying that you don't belong um, and that <laughs> you haven't really earned um, the right to be here. But my kids would come up to me and say, you're my teacher and you're Oregon Teacher of the Year. And seeing their pride and their belief in me um, because of the relationships we had established, let me know, okay, this is our time and it's time to advocate for you. So uh, 2020, as you know, I was all excited. We're getting ready to take off. Okay, it's time to like meet all these different people across the country and, and COVID hit. And so that really wasn't my... Um, reality. A lot of my engagements and interactions were much like this, right? Recordings over Zoom. Um, but it does allow you to get to know people in a different way and have to rely on a different skill set. So I was getting stretched in that process. And then um, all of the racial and social justice uprisings were just taking off. Um, so Breonna Taylor, Maud Arbery, George Floyd. Um, and some of the backlash that I got was around, why are you always talking about these black people and black lives? And we don't really feel like that's a, that's a political stance that you should take without recognizing as a black female in this body, I'm already political and I'm already politicized. And I felt like this is exactly why I was chosen for this year, because who better to advocate and speak about and speak into some of the issues and to do so with ultimately with love and conviction and courage. Right. Um, because in the Northwest, I don't know if y'all know this, but the population of black folks out here is probably <laughs> we probably make up about three and a half percent of the total state. Um, and so. There were opportunities to have conversations about things that um, people probably otherwise would not have been having. Um, and the spotlight of being Oregon 2020 Teacher of the Year allowed people to seek me out for those conversations. And I'm like, okay, you, you sought me out. So this is our time um, to engage around social justice and equity. And yeah, so that's a little bit about my time as Teacher of the Year. 
that's dope, you know. And it's it's weird because you know when when we're people of color and we have these titles, we step into these spaces and people say, "Oh, don't make it political." Well, it was political, you know. Who I am is political to some people, you know, and it's really pushed in a bad space. And then they send you to all these, you know. Well, you had you did it virtually, but you go to these events with these politicians who are making some of the most partisan statements ever, but yet they expect you to get up and make a neutral statement when someone is just pretty much denied your personhood, who you are as an individual. And so it's a very, very tough, it's a hard road to navigate, especially being Black, because, you know, we're dangerous, you know? And so whatever we do, we're going to get those death threats, those letters, and so was a lot of your pushback, was it from the politicians or was it more so from the education education administrators? Because they're, they're, those are two different groups when it comes to education and policy. So you are absolutely correct. And for me, right, it was it was like very indirectly um, from the politician in um, and there were some roundtables, I'm not going to say exactly which roundtables, but there were some roundtables that were assembled, um, particularly along the lines of COVID. And and so the invitation was to come and to hear and to give feedback. And it, it didn't take long um, in, one of, in one of those sessions. It did not take a long time to kind of realize, wait, wait, this feels a lot like gaslighting. This feels a lot, very familiar to other times where I have been invited, whether as a community member, a parent, or as an educator to come and lend my voice or my ears, supposedly under the auspices of being heard, only for that information to kind of be taken and used in an opposite way than what it was presented to be for, I, I will say that. And, and so I started raising questions about that. And one of the comments was, well, you know, Teachers just need to be cajoled and 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 they'll get with the program. And, and we were talking about things like masks and wearing them, right, um, to protect our educators from being sick and our little people and young folk, right? Um, and I'm like, that's not something we can be cajoled into. I mean, you can't on one end say I respect your mind and the fact that you're educated and you are savvy and you are aware and then when folks start raising their voice or raising questions, because that's what we do as teachers, right? Great teachers question things, right? And not necessarily for just the end or the answer, but for the process of learning, right? Cycles of inquiry. Um, and to totally dismiss that and and say we just need to be conjoled, um, that was really disrespectful. And so my position was this is not a space um, where I'm going to actively give up three or four hours of my evening to be harmed or to participate in harm. And I, and I don't, I don't think that that was viewed as favorable by the powers that be. And I was like, that's okay. At the end of the day, I got to live in my own integrity. And so I moved on to some other things, building level wise, where it's like, here's the work. And I could, you know, it looks good to have your name on this page or have this title or to hang out with these folks, but the work is here with children and with other educators. And so that's what I chose to lean into. But that's an example. Uh, there were other things that were said and 
I'm just not going to go into all that, but there were, there were some direct things about speaking so much about what, what was happening in my community. And I'm like, you, you, you have to see that these are the people that I come from and, and how disrespectful it would be right to my ancestors, to my grandmother, who's 98 and looking at me and proud and going, you better tell the truth. Um, that was one of the things that I've been taught since a little girl to speak truth to power. And that is an expectation. Um, so I didn't want to let my people down. Um, and I felt like in some ways that didn't give me access to maybe some other opportunities. And I was like, well, it's just going to have to be that way. Yeah. It's funny you say that because I went through so much of that, whereas certain places you can tell they were never going to invite me to speak or certain places that weren't going to invite me to speak again, because it's hard when you're speaking for your people. Everybody wants to hear, they want to hear the feel-good stories of overcoming, but they don't want to hear about the systemic barriers put in place and why do you even have to work so hard to overcome? That, that That's that's not the feel-good part. That's the uncomfortable moving your seat part and people don't want to hear that. But the reality is you, you've given us this, this role to tell our students stories and this is what we're going to do. We're going to tell this is why they have to overcome because of the system and the things that others have put in place. And so it's really hard. It's really unique situation. Absolutely. And it's not only just the stories of our youth and the children we serve, but as educators in bodies of color in our various buildings or communities, there's also much that you have to navigate. And I'm like, Folks don't really want to know what what was the real journey, right, to Oregon 2020 Teacher of the Year. Like in special education where I live, I am one of maybe 15 special educators of color, right? Um, and staff, right? You need your EAs and instructional assistants and all of that. And they were not pre- prepared. They had never had a, a, a black person, person of color, period, but certainly not a black woman, right? Like leading the classroom. And so it's things from like back to school night where people walk in and they're like, oh, I'm looking for the teacher. And I'm like sitting right here, right? It's me. I'm your child's teacher, right? And the looks of shock um, to, I had racist notes left on my desk at lunchtime, just crazy stuff. Like, and it's like, you, you do build endurance and resilience and wisdom and all these other beautiful gifts out of such adversity as do my children. Right. Um, a lot of times when you see the special education label, folks don't see anything else. You don't think that there's abundance or brilliance or creativity and these young folk, just because they have an exceptionality, let me let me show you, right, what my kids can do. And that, that kind of became the mantra. And it also became the mantra for myself. Well, let me let me prove it to you. Um, but that that takes a toll. It takes a toll, right? Yeah, that'll definitely wear on you. Well, so so transitioning then, you're let's look ahead to the next school year. Tell us about the Hollis School. I mean, what's going on there? Hollis School. I'm so excited about Hollis School. Uh, so Hollis School is an extension of um, 
the founder and executive director, Eric Knox. Um, he started a nonprofit called Hala that was really just about bringing um, BIPOC mentors into the community, right, to mentor youth of color, um, particularly black, brown, and indigenous youth. Um, and so he hit me up right, you know, during the pandemic and was like, yo, are you willing to just write some curriculum for me? And I'm like, yeah, cool, let's do it. <clears throat> so I brought my partner in, uh, Julie Palmer, and we just got to work dreaming. What What is possible in a community if we could really do what we know is best for all kids, but particularly benefits Black, Brown, and Indigenous youth? What could that look like? Um, and so we started fleshing that out. And then after we submitted the pr proposal and got it approved, uh, Mr. Knox was like, hey, you, you, what about being the administrator here? We need somebody who really understands the pedagogy um, and really embodies it, who will carry this vision forward and kind of build the foundation. And so I'm really excited. Our, our motto is all children are abundant, brilliant and creative. It really is born out of um, Chris Emden's work around spaces being too rudimentary um, for our youth to really um, display their brilliance. Um, and so the school is all about widening our apertures collectively as a community, right, to see these youth um, in some really different ways. And so we've got entrepreneurship going on, agriculture, um, an emphasis on lit literacy. Um, and for the foundation, what really excited me is that we used the scholarship of BIPOC folk. Like, we're no longer going to take this rotten foundation and keep applying things as we know happens in public education and then think we're going to get different results. So you got to start with a whole new ground floor, right, um, and build it with intention from the bottom up. And that's really um, what we have set out to do. Um, the name people go, Holla School, what does that mean? It's an ode to, um, and a shout out to Tupac uh, as a young poet and visionary. Holla if you hear me. Um, our logo is a butterfly, and that totally comes from hip hop pedagogy as well. Um, so Kendrick Lamar, right, and his <laughs> whole whole piece about um, the butterfly feeds on what it consumes, and and we're trying to flip that narrative. And, and what is it that these young kindergarten through second grade students in its first year? What will they consume and what will they show us about who they are? Um, so I'm so excited, y'all. I really am. Yeah. I, I'm excited for you. I'm getting excited listening to you talk about it. It's just one of those things. And I just want to bring up that right now as we record, it is National Charter School Week right now. A lot of charter schools are bringing attention to their plight and some of the things they're going through. And you know, I think it's one of those things where people get all, I'm for charter schools, I'm against charter schools, I'm for any school that works. Any mm. school that works, especially for our black and brown children, because traditional schools ain't necessarily doing the job in a lot of cases. And so I think it's really important for us to have any options for our parents and for our families. And so as we talk about the term culturally responsive schools, but you like to talk about culturally responsive and sustaining schools. Explain to us a little bit about what that means. So culture responsive, right? Um, 
is born out of Gloria Gladstone Billings work. And we, you know, we know that she's the kind of mother of um, coining culture responsive, but really it is um, been extended to understand that it's a science. And before our, our black, brown and indigenous or BIPOC youth um, can really settle down and settle into the learning place, right? Because these institutions have been harmful places, there's a lot of mistrust. And if my brain is always, right, fired into a place of mistrust and kind of suspicion, I can't actually learn. And so what we're talking about is like really basically just good teaching, right? And how do you establish that rapport with young people so that they can do some of the more academically robust things. And I like to say robust rather than rigorous because rigor is really dead, right? Like that etymology of that word, rigor mortis, it's, it's, it's tight and it's, it's, it's not able to bend or adapt. But when we talk about robust, right, we have something that's wide and vibrant and beautiful with space for the students to fill it in themselves. And I feel like part of good educational philosophy or pedagogy, right, is not always the teachers just telling students what to do, um, but them coming and saying, hey, this is what I want to discover, or this is what I learned, and here's where I want to go. And I think culture responsive and sustaining makes room for that, right? So it's not just, oh, I'm going to do a couple of sale practices, social emotional learning, greet you with a high five, and then we're getting right back down to the, to the um, nuts and bolts without including your voice, sustaining means that you you are included, you, your community, and any other stakeholders throughout this whole journey. Um, and that's the sustaining piece. It's not a one and done. Um, and there's no easy fix. And a lot of people are not always up for that challenge, right? Um, because what I knew yesterday may not be the thing that's right tomorrow. I may have to adapt and come up with something new, right? To meet my learners where they're at. So the that's my synopsis of what a culturally responsive and sustaining community is like. That's powerful. And you said it, so it's just getting started, right? So you're just K through two right now. Is that, is that what I, yeah, and then so you said it was, is it tuition free? Is that what I recall? It is tuition free. Um, it is a public charter. Um, and like Rodney, I've heard much of the debates and people kind of being hesitant to support like, ah, uh, I'm a public school teacher. Listen, it is still a public school. Um, but we are creating some different options. And I think it's imperative. I think the times call for it, right? We can continue to do things as they have always been done um, without getting different results, or we can take some risks and try something new. And I think that's what we're trying to do at Hollow School. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm trying not to go off on the tangent, but I get so frustrated with people who knowingly know that schools are harmful in a lot of cases to black and brown students. These are the same folks. I mean, they're up, they're on Twitter, they're everywhere screaming about how harmful these spaces are. But then the second you talk about school choice and charter schools and creating your own spaces, these are the same people that are like, well, charter schools are terrible. But wait a minute, you just said that the public schools are terrible. Why not give people the autonomy to do something or get parents and communities the autonomy to do something that works for them. And so I get really, really upset when people start that argument. Just pub charter schools are public schools. You know, stop with that whole, 
they're trying to privatize this. Now, there's part of the charter school movement that is very problematic, you know, but when we're talking about public neighborhood-created charter schools where parents and community members get together and say, this is what's best for our children because the other ways weren't working. They were causing more harm than good. I don't know how you can be against that. You know, how can you say you're for children, but you want to keep institutions that are... that are perpetuating harm on students. And so I get really, really frustrated. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be quiet before I get in trouble. You know, I, no, you know, it's must... good. I agree with you wholeheartedly. <laughs> I do. Um, and I, I think there's this other piece of it, too, that I, I am discovering, right? I, I come from a large, comprehensive high school with like 2,400 students in it, right? Um, and then when you add in the teachers and faculty and staff, you're talking about a, a, a little town of about 2,700 people all in one building. And to think that every every youth is getting what they need in that setting, it's just not even possible. Even the best teachers, right? I'm an awesome teacher, and I still could not meet the needs of every single one of my learners um, on a consistent basis, right? And so I think one of the beauties of the public charter school is that it is a small school community and it does allow you to do things on a more individualized way to meet your kids where they are at. Um, And like you said, with the support and the vetting and the stamp of the community who's advocating for it to be there. Um, And I do see it as also a form of self-determination, right? To be able to determine Right. From this point, look. During the pandemic, while Oregon 2020 Teacher of the Year, I lost three students, um, all young men of color. And. That was the eye opener. I'm getting a little emotional, but that was that was the catalyst for me when this opportunity came, because I'm like. It is not enough just to graduate our babies. There has to be something radically different about what they believe about themselves and their own potential. And it's got to start sooner, right? It's got to start sooner. And so that's the whole piece of like, people are like, why'd you go from high school to elementary? Because I'm like, I need to start here. I'm tired of, right? Like just getting people over the hump, right? And I'm just out there with a diploma And then, right, they don't have the life skills and the other pieces that are needed to really thrive. Um, And we're talking about being able to thrive now, not just survive. Right. We actually share that journey because my my job immediately before becoming a special education teacher was I was a job coach for adults with disabilities in Oklahoma City. So trying to help, you know, young uh, individuals with disabilities, recent high school graduates find meaningful work, not like wiping tables at Taco Bell, you know, which is a job and that may be an appropriate job for some folks, but it was like, no, we're looking for real full-time benefits, actual jobs. Like this young man or young woman can do this job that is before us. So, you know, if you put a math test in front of them, probably may not be so great, but that's not the job. The job is X, Y, Z. And so uh, I I understand that. And and just like feeling like you need to get ahead of that. I think that's a common theme I hear. Uh, among special education teachers where it's like, okay, well, so it's not here. So let's rewind it a little bit. Let's rewind a little bit. And there you are now in elementary, which is exciting. 
Um, I didn't want to move off of the... I come from a place where <laughs> the charter school thing is, is, is divisive because uh, it depends on how it's implemented in the state. Yeah. So if all you have are poor examples in Oklahoma has some really poor, see some lawsuit funding type issue examples of where yeah. that has gone wrong. And then when I came down to Texas, I've seen some awesome outstanding examples. And then we've had some ones that are problematic and they're problematic in the sense, like you said, if the institution isn't serving some students well, then it has a place. But what happens when one tries to set up shop in a place where we are doing well? And I'm really proud of my district um, for checking a lot of those boxes. Like, Hey, we're like an A plus, like you have, you're surrounded by A plus campuses. Like what is the justification for inserting this charter? And you find out some of the messaging is a little different. You find out they're real choosy about who they let in. And if you have a disability, if you have an IEP, mm, that's out the door. You know, so those are the thing is they're they're going to be they get lumped in all together. And we, yeah. the three of us, know that these are not one and the same. But there's not a way uh, by the book or by the text to differentiate Hollis School from uh, for-profit, uh, we're based in New York, but we're operating in Texas, just wanting to run numbers, and these kids end up coming back to my district anyway after a six-week stint. Um, it's and, and so at the court, for our listeners, w- to help you differentiate, I would say, one, are they local? Like, are they, are they, did they come up locally? And I've seen this example in Tucson, Arizona, where it was based uh, with, like, agriculture. Everybody had an ag job and they, they had gardens and they had hydroponics and they went and turned around and sold the, the vegetables to the community at a rate like way less than what they were going to pay at the grocery store. So like, just look, do any kind of, if you, if that's your question is like, how local is it? If its roots are local and they're, they're based, um, you know, they're based in the community, they have roots in the community, then there's your answer. Like that is your, that's your deciding factor as opposed to, and I know this is a blanket generalization, but maybe if the one isn't so local, if their roots are elsewhere, then maybe that might be the clue that like, okay, so this might be the, a case where some people are vilifying charter schools. Um, do, it's, it's worth doing your research though. One and the same is like if, if folks will vilify public education, they're doing that well right now. Mm-hmm. They've got that in spades. And we all know that not all public schools are the same. We're, we're doing what we can and some are not doing well and, and it is what it is. Uh, so you just, you have to look, you have to look under the the hood every now and then, which I know sounds like a big lift, but because folks these days, they don't want to do that. They don't want to, you telling me I got to Google something? No. Yeah, <laughs> like, you have to do was, your due diligence. Yeah. I tell people anytime you have a, a preconceived opinion before knowing something, it's usually the wrong opinion. There you, go. you know, you need to really do your work and find out. And that's what I hate is that people that regurgitate the same talking points and lump everything together. You know, take your time, visit the schools, talk to the students, talk to the parents before you go on this whole typical anti-charter points. Because some of your points are true, but a lot of them are not. And so you really need to educate yourself. And it's a shame that, you know, Mercedes has in her holler school has to fight these preconceived notions when she is strictly there just to serve and provide an alternative, better education for students that typically aren't served well by the system. And so uh, that's what's so frustrating about the whole public charter argument, you know. And, you know, I'll just leave it there. Like I said, I'm not going <laughs> to go where I want to go with this one, you know. <laughs> we'll get there another 
another yeah, episode. Well, yeah. Mercedes, let's uh, it's 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 been a, a joy to have you on here first. Uh, I yes. just it's great to know your journey. Before we pivot to the homework and extra credit, I do have a question. So, if your folks started barbecue uh, in Oregon, what is what's barbecue in Oregon like, and how is it different from? <laughs> I'll hold up now. <laughs> I'm, I'm picturing like I'm picturing salmon. I feel like like what? What's good? <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, barbecue Go salmon. Ahead, please, please salmon tell, happens please to be really good. Um, by the way. Um, and okay, so, all right. Um, but my grandfather was from Peoria, Texas, and that's where his people were from, right? Oh, and then, okay. right, he caught that as many did during the Great Migration, right? You can trace it to the railroads, right? So Texas. Louisiana, most likely heading to California, right? Um, and so that's what he did. I uh, had was in California, um, but he engineered a brick pit. Um, did some work at NASA and was like a guy who liked to tinker around and stuff. Um, and the fire did not go out in that pit. It was brick pit barbecue, and I'm telling you, the best brisket melt in your mouth. Buttery okay. all the way through all right. fire, right? Um, and so, yeah, he was just genius. He was like, you know what? I'm not going to set um, this restaurant up in the neighborhoods where people e- expect it. I'm going to set it on the other side of town so that everybody mm. has access and can come. Um, and it thrived for a lot of years. Um, and then, unfortunately, uh, he and my grandmother passed uh, due to cancer. And my aunt and my dad kind of took on the restaurant for a few more years and then they closed it down. But if you ask people, they will tell you Campbell's Barbecue in the Pacific Northwest was throwing it down. Okay. Sure. All right. So it's Texas barbecue just made in the Northwest. You know, but you know some fresh Northwest ingredients and stuff. I can't tell y'all all the family secrets, but okay, it was good. All right, okay. All right. All right. Cool. We, we, you're not going to ask Yeah. <laughs> Well, all right. Well, give us, uh, what's the homework assignment for the Teachers Caucus, uh, folks in Oregon specifically? Um, Homework assignment for folks in Oregon, you know, especially in this political climate, um, while teachers and education is being disparaged, I think it's important to have you a journey partner um, and to have a group of constituents, right, um, that you can you can talk to, you can problem solve um, folks who are going to speak life into you. And so that's the homework assignment, right? If you are feeling isolated or siloed in your building, it means that you are not talking to enough folks. Um, and to get you at least one other person, right, um, that you can do some cycles of inquiry with and check out Zaretta Hammond's Culture Responsive Teaching in the Brain. Do that together. Get you some good joy up in there um, with learning together. That's the homework assignment. All right. So with that homework, you know, what what extra credit do you have for us? Extra credit. I was really thinking um, a moment ago, uh, Ronnie, when you started talking and you said, I'm not going to go there anymore about the uh, public charters, but narratives, right? Narratives that are repeated over and over usually drive policy. And that's something that Ibram X. Kendi unpacks really well in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And so that would be the extra credit is to lean into some of the definitions and how he unpacks policy um, so that we can be better advocates on the flip side. That's the extra credit. 
Yeah, yeah, because the policy right now coming out of the U.S. Department of Education is really punishing your local neighborhood charter schools. It's not punishing mm. the big market, you know, national chain of charters. It's really having an effect on the locals. And so that's why that narrative is so important. Is That narrative is hurting the people who it mostly benefits from. And so we really need to take that extra credit assignment to heart. And also check out the Holler School. She didn't give out that assignment, but I'm telling everybody, check it out. Go register your kids. We're going to make this happen because when we have you back, we want you to be bring a kid on and talk about the success of the Holler School and everything that's going on because it's really important for those kids to have that culturally responsive and sustaining education while they're young. So when they're teenagers, they have a better understanding of the world and won't be so lost in the sauce of, of America. So, yeah, I'm giving you extra, extra credit just to check her out, check out the school. There you go. What's that uh, website, Mercedes? It's www.hollaschool.org. And, yes, please check us out. Thank you. All right. 2020 Oregon Teacher of the Year, Mercedes Munoz, thank you so much for joining us. We're grateful for your continued advocacy work, and we're excited to see What's on deck with the Holla School will be following closely, and we ask that our uh, Teachers Caucus members do the same. With that, this meeting of the Teachers Caucus is now adjourned.